0: today is the 7th of march 2023 and in Taisho this evening we're going to explore effort diligence Um, in just eight days from now we'll be starting a three-week term intensive we have these once or twice a year, usually in the, in the autumn and in the spring. And since we've been exiled from our Zendo for quite some time, it felt like a good time to uh, have one of these term intensives. And it will actually straddle, all going well. Um, we'll be back in the building um, not long after the term intensive uh, starts. But some people may, may not know what a term intensive is. It's, it's, a, it's a non-residential training period in which in some way or other we intensify our dharma practice and it's for this set period of time. So this one will be a three-week one. And so that's the term part of a term intensive. And intensive speaks for itself. It's a way of our uh, focusing on our Dharma practice um, in all its facets, really, and in the midst of our everyday lives. And this is really why um, the term intensive is is so valuable. And people decide to do different things for this period to... um, intensify their dharma practice to focus on it. Um, most ov- obviously one is, is more sitting or perhaps more regular sitting and um, bringing in other practices such as, as chanting or prostrations which can really enrich our, our sitting practice. sometimes people will do things around maintaining greater presence and awareness when not sitting on uh, different kinds of uh, mindfulness practices and sometimes people will focus on um, a painful habit or an addictive behavior and and uh, shine, the, shine the light on it so as to be free of it to some degree. So term usually involves adding things or taking them away. And as with seshine, there is a power to it in that we're doing it with others. We're not all in the same physical space but we're in contact uh, regularly and like uh, team sport or, or dancing perhaps um, this this synchronous behavior is um, good for us good for our mental health and keeps us accountable so that whatever commitment we've made um, we are coming back each week to see everybody and, and letting everybody know how our commitments have been going and there comes with us a kind of um, peer support where we've got the added um, impetus of not wanting to let everybody down by not fulfilling our our pledges. The weekly check-ins happen on on Zoom at at eight, usually um, less than an hour. And we found um that having them on a different night and doing them by Zoom um, means that people can do something without having to be out for another evening, especially if they're coming on another night to to one of the formal sittings at the Zendo. So Everybody who takes takes part in a term intensive is doing something a little different or um, differently or they're doing more of something or less of something. And and again, as I said, we get get to report in each week. People often struggle um, to decide um, what to do or how much to stretch um, and it is one of these things that you, you really have to learn through experience what is the is the, the right um, amount of effort that will be helpful uh, without falling into straining or, or um, on the other side without um, Making not enough effort to have a sense of of being stretched, so it really this question of right effort comes up. Um, we can find right effort taught in in different ways in in Buddhism, and perhaps as evidence of its importance. As a as a as a strand of our training, in that it it um, appears in the number of the of the uh, lists that are so frequently found in Buddhism, um, it's part of the eightfold noble path, the most basic and essential of all the teachings shared by all the schools. Uh, right effort. Or sometimes it's translated as zeal or exertion. sama vayama. And this word, this word summer, is perhaps closer to complete or whole. So a complete effort. this effort, virya. Um, this was also one of the six parameters, the perfection of energy or diligence. Also, I've seen it expressed in English as enthusiasm. It also appears in the seven factors of enlightenment. yanga in this this word, um, sapta is for limbs or, or or factors. We need all, and we need all of the seven to to be able to walk the path. And often, as in these in these lists that we appear in our teaching, there are all the all the things mentioned in a particular list are related to the rest of the of the of the different things in the list and point to um, a circling around a particular truth or teaching. Uh, It's significant that among the seven limbs of enlightenment along with um, effort are ease and joy. So these different factors all have to be realized and and developed together, they're not sequences so much as they are circles or mandalas. I haven't got time to look at each of these in great detail, but just to uh, touch on a little bit from the, as regards the Eightfold Noble Path. Right view, right aspiration, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right diligence or effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. So all, all of these um, arise together, you could say, and they're commonly broken down into three parts, right view and right aspiration as are the, uh, the, the wisdom part, speech action and livelihood are uh, the ethical behavior part and then our effort or diligence is grouped with mindfulness and concentration as as part of the mental discipline aspect of the eightfold path so how how we Make an effort in our in our mental training in our practice. This is where it, f- it fits in. And you could say that our wisdom emerges from our mental discipline, and is supported by our ethical behaviour, which which reinforce our our right view, which is the. The uh, wisdom aspect. So they're all very much interrelated. The the um, traditional formulation for this right diligence or right effort is is known as the um, surprisingly the four right efforts, the proper efforts, and. Um Again, we can come at them from different angles. This one is uh, the first of these uh, angles is coming from Lama Govinda, a great great German Buddhist scholar and practitioner. He, they're broken down here, breaks them down into or <coughs> well, the sutras break them down into four phases the effort to destroy the evil which has arisen in our mind, the effort to prevent the evil which has not yet arisen, the effort to produce the good which has not yet arisen, the effort to cultivate the good which has arisen. So it's seen as a a discipline of developing and cultivating good qualities and um, preventing the development of... um, Here, evil qualities, and the good qualities are, again, these these seven factors of enlightenment in which effort is also included, mindfulness, discerning the truth, energy, that's our, our diligence or vigor, rapture, serenity, concentration, and equanimity. There are understandings of these, these four proper exertions which are not entirely mental, though. And this one's from Master Sheng Yin, taking it from, a, from the um, you could say the Bodhisattva point of view. And he formulates these, these proper exertions or efforts as to help others to avoid non-virtuous acts they have yet to be, that have not yet been performed to persuade others to cease performing non-virtuous acts to encourage others to engage in wholesome acts not yet performed and to stop others from nurturing and ex- and expanding those positive endeavors they are already performing Sorry, to encourage these of course to to do this, to, to encourage others, one has to be also doing it oneself. But it does, does point to kind of our social responsibility to, to make an effort um, for these things to be developed within our, our societies, not just in ourselves. But perhaps the most um, helpful formulation that um, came across in preparing for this talk um, comes from Thich Nhat Hahn. He phrases it this way. Preventing unwholesome seeds in our store consciousness that have not yet arisen from arising. Helping the unwholesome seeds that have already arisen to return to our consciousness, store consciousness. Finding ways to water the wholesome seeds in our store consciousness that have not yet arisen and to ask our friends to do the same and nourishing the wholesome seeds that have already arisen so that they 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 will stay present in our mind consciousness and grow stronger. So he, he here he he presents them really with the with the image in the background of a gardener tending a garden, watering what needs to be watered, not watering what is unhelpful or unwholesome. and inviting others to do so as well. It's an important aspect from the Mahayana point of view. And he explains, unwholesome means not conducive to liberation of the path or the path. In our store consciousness there are many seeds that are not beneficial for our transformation and if those seeds are watered they will grow stronger when greed hatred ignorance and wrong views arise if we embrace them with right mindfulness sooner or later they, they will lose their strength and return to our store consciousness if we apply this to our to our own practice and 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 our thinking about what we might take up as a practice for the term intensive. Um, He's pointing to us paying close attention to the spirit of what we might want to do in this regard. We could say that that hard practice may have um, a wrong motivation. It may be forced in some way and um, a practice that's, that's too slack may have um, laziness behind it. So to, to look at our own um, motivation here, The, the Eightfold Path, where we find this, this right or complete effort, is a, an expression of the middle way. Here's what um, Mark Epstein says in Thoughts Without a Thinker about this middle way. And of course the Eightfold Path is is presented as the Fourth Noble Truth in in the Buddhist teaching of the Four Noble Truths. Here's what he says. The fourth noble truth the Buddha articulated in his first teaching at Sarnath was that of the way leading to the cessation of dukkha. Known as the middle path, it was said to avoid the two extremes of self-indulgence and self-mortification, or in more contemporary terms, of idealization and denial. So raising something up or, or... putting it down. Having tried both sets of practices that is asceticism and and um, self-indulgence the Buddha realized that each subtly reinforced the very notions of I or mine that created the state of suffering in the first place. The search for happiness, though through sense pleasures, he called low, common, unprofitable, and the way of ordinary people. And the search for happiness through denial or asceticism, he called painful, unworthy, and unprofitable. Relaxing the ego boundaries and dissolving the sense of self in pleasurable or even ecstatic experiences did not relieve suffering nor did giving free rein to the emotions. Attacking the body and subjugating the self, coercing the ego into some kind of surrender, also did not relieve suffering, nor did trying to deny the emotions. The correct approach, taught the Buddha, lay in the ground between the two extremes. It required the alignment of eight specific factors of mind and behavior. View, aspiration, speech, action, livelihood, effort, mindfulness and concentration. So here the eight, eight aspects of the Eightfold Path. When these factors were properly established, taught the Buddha, they constituted the path to cessation. The eight factors were collectively known as the Eightfold Path. The behavioural categories of right speech, right action and livelihood are the ethical foundation. The meditative categories of right concentration and right mindfulness are the foundation of mental discipline traditionally associated with the formal practice of meditation. And the wisdom categories of right understanding and right thought represent the conceptual foundation that has also been termed right view. It is this latter character category, that is often given short shrift by those eager to embark on the meditative path, who, when it on the meditative path consistent with the Buddhist method of approaching an authentic view of self by first bringing the manifestations of false self into awareness the most effective way of developing the right view that the Buddha encouraged is to examine the various common manifestations of false view and often we have to do this in terms of determining how to make an effort. that We may go down different roads which, which turn out to be unhelpful and uh, unwholesome but we only find out often which these are by going down those paths and then f- and finding ourselves at dead ends. But we're given, we are given guidance by these eight eight aspects of the path. He says a bit a little bit later. We do not know what to make of our emotions. And we let our various attempts at dealing with them define our understanding of the Buddha's teaching. To truly follow the Eightfold Path, we must reverse this process. Instead of letting our misconceptions about our feelings influence our understanding, we must let our understanding change the way we experience our emotions. And everybody probably has some experience of how... Um, so much of our practice can be tied up in how do we work with the strong emotions that come up. How do we make effort in working with them? And Epstein as a, as a the psychologist has has something to say about this, which is very well expressed and I think very helpful for us. He says, Emotional experience remains a problematic area for most people. We are all made uncomfortable by the intensity of our feelings and we develop various ways of defending against this intensity. Buddhist emptiness is the key that unlocks the problem of the emotions. Emptiness is not hollow. It does not mean a vacuity of feeling. Emptiness is the understanding that the concrete experiences to which we are accustomed do not exist in the way we imagine. An experience that the late Tibetan Lama Kalu Rinpoche called an intangible one, most comparable to that of a mute person tasting sugar, something that. You know, an experience that can't can't be expressed, in other words. In particular, it means that the emotions that we take to be so real and are so worried about do not exist in the way we imagine them. They do exist, but we can know them in a way that is different from either expressing or repressing them. The Buddha meditations on the Buddha's meditations on emptiness are not meant as a withdrawal from the falsely conceived emotions but as a means of recognizing the misconceptions that surround them, thereby clinging, thereby changing the way that we experience them altogether. The middle way of the Buddha has particular relevance in our emotional life. One of the great lessons of the Fourth Noble Truth and of the Buddha's teachings in general is that it is possible to learn a new way to be with one's feelings. The Buddha taught a method of holding thoughts, feelings and sensations in the balance of meditative equipoise so that they can be seen in a clear light stripping away the identifications and reactions that usually adhere to the emotions like moss to a stone The Buddha's method allows the understanding of emptiness to emerge. This is an understanding that has vast implications for the field of psychotherapy because it promises great relief from even ordinary suffering. As the third Zen ancestor, writing in the early 7th century AD, articulated articulated with great clarity, then he offers these verses. When the mind exists undisturbed in the way, nothing in the world can offend. And when a thing can no longer offend, it ceases to exist in the old way. If you wish to move in the one way, do not dislike even the world of senses and ideas. Indeed, to accept them fully is identical with true enlightenment. People might recognize these lines as coming from the chant we regularly do, affirming faith and Mind. But in our version, he, there are two actually two different sections that he's um, knitted together. When this one mind rests undisturbed, then nothing in the world offends. And when no thing can give offence, then all obstructions cease to be. The second one is just a little bit later. If you would walk the highest way, do not reject the sense domain. For as it is, whole and complete, this sense world is enlightenment. When the mind exists undisturbed in the way, nothing in the world can offend. What enormous freedom there is in this. We don't have to reject the sense world, um, but to embrace it in, in its wholeness. Ajahn Sumedho, um, the uh, Western uh, Thai Forest Tradition monk, leader, master, put it this way. He said, I learned to simply watch desire, desire for sensations, desire to become something, to get somewhere or to get rid of things. I learned simply to watch. This is, this is, how what we discover in our practice, in this watching in itself is is transformative, and we can probably pick it one or two of these d- desires that he mentions um, that give us particular trouble: desire for sensations, desire for wonderful experiences, desire to become something, to become master, to become a spiritual person, to get somewhere, this is one we often struggle with, or to get rid of things, to get rid of our uncomfortable thoughts or difficult conditions. Often our, our practice, what brings us to practice, will be different kinds of desires or aversions. What what Thich Nhat Hanh might identify as unwholesome seeds. This is one of um, the frustrations of practice. that The very things that we, that we, that trouble us, are what we have to face and And see into sooner or later we we uh, have to discover our our selfish motivations and and, and uh, release them. as a Korean uh, teacher who... Um, makes this warning. He says you should be cautious of saying I'm going to devote myself to practice for that is the mind of greed. If you say my practice is going well, that is the mind of ignorant arrogance and if you say my practice isn't going well that is the mind of anger. Therefore, not doing these three is the practice of the path. Practice diligently, and as long as you do not do your practice, you will be fine. This is the paradox that our our diligence largely consists in what we, we don't do, what we refrain from doing. But here, here are very um, sincerest aspirations uh, for the practice can, can turn out to be uh, tainted with the poisons. And this brings us to um, another teaching which is um, seems to be in contradiction with with effort, with uh, right effort, with diligence, and yet is in a sense um, closely, deeply related to it. And it's, it's aimlessness. It's also part of a grouping. It's one of the three doors of liberation, along with um, emptiness and signlessness and really it is in in a certain way um, a form of a right effort pranahita we'll then turn to take not hard to read a little bit about this Apranahita. He says, the third door of liberation is aimlessness, a pranihita. There is nothing to do, nothing to realize, no program, no agenda. This is the Buddha's teaching about eschatology. Eschatology is um, a way of indicating the doctrines of last or final things. As in death, the judgment, future states, and so forth. So, in a sense, Buddhist eschatology is what he describes here that there is actually nothing to do or realize, no program, no agenda, no salvation. It's all right here. He goes on Does the rose have to do something? No, the purpose of a rose is to be a rose. Your purpose is to be yourself. You don't have to run anywhere to become someone else. You are wonderful just as you are. This teaching of the Buddha allows us to enjoy ourselves, to enjoy the blue sky and everything that is refreshing and healing in the present moment. There is no need to put anything in front of us and run after it. We already have everything we are looking for, everything we want to become. We are already a Buddha, so why not just take the hand of another Buddha and practice walking meditation? This is the teaching of the Abhatamska Sutra. Be yourself. Life is precious as it is. All the elements for your happiness are already here. There is no need to run, strive, search or struggle. Just be. Just being in the moment In this place is the deepest practice of meditation. Most people cannot believe that just walking as though you have nowhere to go is enough. They think that striving and competing are normal and necessary. Try practicing aimlessness for just five minutes and you will see how happy you are during those five minutes. The problem is, of course, that we don't know this in our being. We don't know it in our bones. Or we could say, maybe it's better to say our bones know it, but our brain doesn't. And so, um, like, like Samuel Johnson, we, we, we make an effort. He said, what we hope to do with ease, we must first do with diligence. But there, we could say that there is this deep connection between diligence and ease, between diligence and 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 mastery, knowing, knowing through and through who and what we are. He continues: the Heart Sutra says that there is nothing to attain, or in our version, it's um, attainment to is emptiness. We, we meditate not to attain alignment because enlightenment is already in us. We don't have to search anywhere. We don't need a purpose or a goal. We don't practice in order to obtain some high position. In aimlessness, we see that we do not lack anything, that we already are what we want to become and our striving just comes to a halt. We are at peace in the present moment just seeing the sunlight streaming through the window or ha- hearing the sound of the rain. We don't have to run after anything. We can enjoy every moment. People talk about entering nirvana, but we're already there. Aimlessness and h- nirvana are one. Or or as we chanted just now in, in Master Hickman's chant, this earth where we stand is the pure lotus land and this very body, the body of Buddha. If we think we have 24 hours to achieve a certain purpose, today will become a means to attain an end. The moment of chopping wood and carrying water is the moment of happiness. We do not need to wait for those chores to be done to be happy. To have happiness in this moment is the spirit of aimlessness. Otherwise, we will run in circles for the rest of our life. We have everything we need to make the present moment the happiest of our life. Even if we have a cold or a headache, we don't have to wait until we get our cold, until we get over our cold to be happy. Having a cold is part of life. This word "happy" is is again, it's one of these overused words. Um, perhaps one that might work better here possibly is content to be content with whatever is arising to be at peace with it someone asked me aren't you worried about the state of the world i allowed myself to breathe and then i said what is most important is not to allow your anxiety about what happens in the world to fill your heart. If your heart is filled with anxiety, you will get sick and you will not be able to help. There are wars, big and small, in many places, and that can cause us to lose our peace. Anxiety is the illness of our age. We worry about ourselves, our family, our friends, our work, and the state of the world. If we allow worry to fill our hearts, sooner or later, we will get sick. Yes, there is tremendous suffering all over the world, but knowing this need not paralyze us. If we practice mindful breathing, mindful walking, mindful sitting, and working in mindfulness, we try our best to help, and we have peace in our heart. Worrying does not accomplish anything. Even if you worry 20 times more, it will not change the situations of the world. In fact, your anxiety will only make things worse. Even though things are not as we would like, we can still be content, knowing we are trying our best and will continue to do so. If we don't know how to breathe, smile and live every moment of our life deeply, we will never be able to help anyone. I am happy in the present moment. I do not ask for anything else. I do not expect any additional happiness or conditions that will bring about more happiness. The most important practice is aimlessness, not running after things, not grasping. So to, to conclude uh, as we maybe consider what to do for um, our term intensive you could say then that, that a term intensive is it has a purpose but it's to be ourselves and nothing more to notice what is going on all around us to be present and aware to be feeling this fresh breeze on our skin or really seeing the faces of the people we live with We we recognizing that we already are what we long for. The breath breathes us. Moo seeks moo. And that's it. Nothing more. We'll stop here and recite the four vows. All beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions, I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure.